All right, I am here on this episode of the Fox Den Podcast, your host, Jeremy Fox here, with Debbie Hampton, who I have been really excited to interview for a while now because she's a prolific author. She's written at least two books that have great reviews on Amazon. Uh, one of them is Beat Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain with Simple Practices That Will Improve Your Life, and the very... Uh, attention-grabbing title, Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin, which, let me tell you, is an awesome name for an autobiography. So Debbie is an advocate and a neuroscience aficionado. Um, she is self-taught on a lot of the stuff, which is even more impressive considering how much she knows about research. Thank you, Debbie, for coming on. Thank you for the invitation, Jeremy. Of course. And we are both Southerners. I'm displaced, though. I'm out here in uh, the West here in Denver. And you are back. Where are you originally from? South Carolina, born and raised near Sparta. Uh, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. North Carolina's great. Um, you're in Greensboro, right? Is that? Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. I miss, let me tell you, I miss Bojangles and Zaxby's. I go back to visit about once a year, and I have to get me a big Bojangles biscuit with that butter it's so unhealthy but so good that's <laughs> so southern i know so you know. so debbie as comfortable as you are you can talk about whatever you want you don't talk about whatever you don't want um i'm going to direct listeners i'm going to put attachments in the links in the podcast description where they can check out these books on their own because i know you at length have shared your story but if you want just for my audience to go over what got you into mental health what you went through that that really sparked your journey here well jeremy as you said i'm a self um taught mm -hmm. mental health expert i right. call myself an experiential expert sketchy title and sometimes um just living the experiences is the best way to learn yeah that's and true. I went from being uh, depressed, um, anxious, catastrophic thinking, uh, very dramatic, reactive personality. Right. To I'm 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 not perfect now, but I'm calm. I'm happy, and I can work with my mind. Yes. And un unfortunately, I don't think any of us are taught how the mental health skills when we're right. growing up. I know I wasn't as a child in the 60s and 70s. Right. We model what we see. And right. my parents were healthy and good parents at, for what was the norm at that time. Of course. But it wasn't incredibly emotionally intelligent. So I learned how to be reactive how to have negative thinking patterns, how to be catastrophic, anxious, depressed. Right. And I followed that example through my adult life. I, I married my high school sweetheart mm -hmm. and we right out of college and we proceeded to move around the U.S. with his job. And um, as he gained in power, Mm -hmm. And he said, in his career, I sunk and decreased. And as his world expanded, mine got smaller and I got more dependent and more anxious and more depressed. And I should say, um, 
he didn't start out this way, but he ended up being a con very controlling narcissist. And as you may know, on the other end of, of narcissist comes all kinds of uh, traumatic mental health issues. Yes. So that was part of why as he grew, I shrank. So I got more depressed, more anxious, and I had one son, and in between that son and my other one, my older brother, who was 13 months, no, I'm sorry, 10 months older than me, got AIDS and died, and I took care oh, of him. Yeah. And as you also may know, and as many of your listeners may know, be a caregiver, oh my gosh, it takes such a toll on your mental health. Absolutely. And to have a baby on one side and him on the other. And then he died. So yes. I'm dealing with all that grief, dealing with being a mother of two now. Yeah. And still a narcissistic controlling husband. Right. And all this is, I'm not, I don't want to come off making excuses. Mm -hmm. But your brain and your mental health are a reflection of your life. Absolutely, um, yes. Science, science is more than proving um, neuroplasticity, your brain actually right. changes form and function depending on what happens in your life. Right. And epigenetics, which is your genes actually switch on or off depending on life events. So I don't think I was born depressed right and with mental health problems right but i certainly had that proclivity in my genes because it we've got alcoholism depression all kinds of things in my family so i certainly had that propensity in my genes and life events just happened one after another and i think it turned those genes on and I didn't have the tools to deal with it. The tools that I learned were commit suicide, overreact, freak out. So unfortunately, that's what I tried to do. Right. Um, in 2007, um, after I divorced the ex and was a single mother living back in North Carolina with my two sons, after a tumultuous relationship, post-divorce relationship with another man, which was almost as unhealthy as the first one, mm. I just said, I've had enough. And right. I tried to kill myself by taking a bunch of pills. Mm -hmm. And I ended up putting myself in a coma mm. uh, for a week. And when I woke up, I was severely brain injured. I mean, I didn't know my second son had been born. I didn't know I got divorced. I couldn't speak, which you still may hear some speech issues, but oh my God, at first all I could do is make sounds. Yeah. So I'll take this any day. But after the brain injury, it was many, many, many years of rehabilitating physically, mentally and emotionally and during that time period 
I've learned. And the more I've learned about how to rehabilitate and change my brain and my emotional state and my mental health, the better I got. And the better I got, the more I learned. And what the bottom line is, what I realized is that this is not anything you need a bunch of money for or that you have to go to school for. I mean, you can certainly. But learning about mental health and neuroplasticity and your brain is something any of us can do. Right. And put it to use in our own lives to help us and yes. help our mental health. And all it takes is time and effort and knowledge. And that's my message. That is absolutely awesome. I think you hit on something so important there. People don't need to feel intimidated by experts with degrees. <laughs> because... You know, when people go to their therapist, hopefully, I underscore, you're going to learn those tips, those those tools, those new scheme, schematic tools that help you conceive of problems in a new way and with a better approach than you had before. So people like you who are out there disseminating this message, giving these tools to people who may not walk into a therapist's office, may not want to take that step, and that's okay, can it first get a handle on these uh, research findings about neuroplasticity and about how it's relevant to them. And, you know, at, at the very most, that may be what they need to get that spark, to, to get out of depression, to get back into life. And at the very least, I think it will be something that gives them the hope to go to a therapist, to go to someone and talk about this stuff. So either way, it's, it's spectacular as a way to begin a conversation that really needs to happen because I, your, your story has a, more than a few, but a, a few elements here that really stand out to me um, you were being squeezed on both sides, right, by by young children on one end, which, of course, we're not blaming, but you, you were serving as a mother on one end, and then as a caretaker for someone on the other side of life who was in, in the grips of passing away. And so that that sort of stretching of your emotional resources played such a part in being just exhausted, I'm guessing. And Jeremy, what so many women and people don't learn, I know I didn't. And I think the generation now is better and they're yeah. learning this, but we, we didn't, you have to learn how to take care of yourself first. Absolutely. And I didn't do that. I mean, I took care of everybody else. Right. Not me. And if you don't take care of yourself, on a daily basis and it's it doesn't have to be a lot of work it can be fun and in a while after a while it just becomes habit mm -hmm. but if you don't you're gonna crash you're gonna have a breakdown you're gonna break out of stress anxiety you know how this gonna show yes and the best thing that any of us will ever do is take care of ourselves 
because it it makes for a happier healthier life now and the long run yes we could get into so many of those factors there that were are are toxic in in that sort of milieu that you were growing up in you know the expectations on women the sort of spiritual underpinnings of needing to always care for others at your own expense the, the turn your other the turn the other cheek mentality people have really perversely abused in draining impasse because the flip side of that on a spiritual level is you we have to care for others as we care for ourselves but guess what if we're caring poorly for ourselves we're caring poorly for others the flip side of that is learning boundaries which i love that book so much by cloud and townsend right the book boundaries it it i recommend anyone who has any tendencies toward codependence or being exhausted emotionally to, to check that out we talk about it in session it's just such an important thing it's a paradigm shift oh yeah people can't use empathy as a tr as a manipulative trigger anymore because that's a pet peeve of mine is seeing people who are giving being tapped out and sucked dry right there's always people who give and those who refuse and we have to make sure that the empaths are not depleted like batteries well i was the child i'm the child of a narcissist so okay. i i did not learn boundaries and you learn on the other side of the narcissistic relationship that you can't say no that right. you don't but i learned in my 40s better late than never but i also learned that there's always a nice way to say no and there's usually something in between yes and no yes and people <laughs> aren't gonna explode and respond the way that you are accustomed to sometimes it's actually what they want to hear absolutely yeah when i work with clients with, with setting up emdr targets one of the big things is tracing back and unraveling that uh the, the early childhood messages you get about what it means to say no it can either mean you're going to be abused you're going to lose out on a parental affection going to have just that coldness or neglect and in our adult relationships we can fear people can fear that, that they're going to lose a friend if they say no and unfortunately there are people who are only around because of what they can get if you lose people like that it hurts it hurts to lose you any relationships right that right you have to uh, grieve that narcissists attract i mean i'm sorry people on the other end of narcissism that can't say no attract users right right it's fascinating how that, that works yeah you know they, they, they learn yeah they yes 100 percent um boy we could just talk about this for a long time i want to ask though so you your story is so inspirational how did you get into i'm just i'm also so impressed by the absolute professionalism of your articles i've got one pulled up here on huffington post the 10 fundamentals of rewiring your brain it reads like an academic essay but one that's got a lot more attractive language and that is more understandable i mean you cite these books you give links within the text to these other books, which i'm going to recommend to clients now uh what got you into 
sharing your message on these platforms like Huffington Post? How did you get into being such a prolific advocate? Well, Jeremy, um, I always say that I have to put, I have to explain neuroscience in ways that I can understand it. So that's, and that's actually become what I'm known for is like explaining it in ways simple to understand, conversational, mm-hmm. making complex topics simple. And it was just such an eye opener to me. And so empowering to understand how my brain worked. And when you do, you realize, oh, that's why I do this or why I react this way. And then you also understand how you change it. And um, so I wanted to share that with others, but I don't really have a great respect for, and I don't mean to disrespect them, but for the airy fairy, um, just believe it's true. Send out good vibes and good vibes will come to you. I mean, that is true to a certain extent. Yeah. But I want to see the science. And I want to know why. Why Why does that work? And to be honest with you, Huffington Post actually contacted me from an article, I think, on My Body Green and invited me to write for them. And I don't know, I just started writing things that I wanted to share with people and they started getting distributed. And I think other people found it as empowering and revelatory as I did. Because when I first read this kind of stuff, I was like, wow, I mean, it totally changed my reality. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I was in my 40s until I learned that I'm not my thoughts and that my thoughts were something different. And I don't have to identify with them or believe them. Your thoughts are are generated by your subconscious brain. Right. And primarily from your wounds. Right. your your fears and your bad experiences that your amygdala is remembering because your brain your brain's priority is always keeping you safe and keeping you alive it is never keeping you happy bingo yep that has to be a conscious choice so everything your brain generates is going to be anxiety producing your brain actually has a negativity bias yes and that's one thing that helped our species survive yes because you you stood a better chance of surviving if you remembered where you were chased by a predator rather than remembering a nice sunny napping spot (laughs) you're right yeah So I always say you have to make the conscious effort to find the good in your past and your present 
and your future. Your brain is not automatically gonna produce that. And that those are the kind of mental health tools that I've learned. I mean, it's not like you graduate or like I've graduated and I never get anxious or have a depressive or negative thought. I do. But the thing I know now is I know how to work with them and yeah. how to work with my mind and how to guide my mind rather than it controlling me and causing me to freak out and commit, try to kill myself. Right. But you don't have to do that. Right. My and it's God. no fun to live that way. That's absolutely spectacular that you recognize the, the foundations of um, evolutionary psychology and the, the bias towards safety. I mean, when you, when you understand that, when you understand that you're, you are not your thoughts and that our negative interpretations don't necessarily mean truth, then you're free to really think differently. Uh, it seems like a lot of people now could stand to be experts on their own lives. I know you said that that's really your specialty. Well, that's a, that is a huge, huge specialty to, to have because it, it seems like people go through life on a very automatic basis now. There, things are very much kind of click, uh, swipe, do all of these activities on a very limbic system level rather than with any kind of cortical, uh, prefrontal cortex forethought. So just being responsible for your own life is huge in itself. And hear me think about it. Um, that's what the anxiety and depressive epidemics are a result of. Right. They're a result of everybody being so limbically stimulated yep. and focused. And that's what their whole life is now. Yes. Is responding or reacting. I'm sorry, reacting. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, absolutely. Without thought, without pulse. Mm -hmm. And that's why mindfulness works so well. Is what mindfulness actually does is it asks you to shift the part of your brain that's in control from the limbic system, from the reactive amygdala that yeah, always yeah. wants to keep you safe to your frontal lobe and your thinking brain, your humanness. And it, it asks you to think, okay, I feel anxious about this. Okay, I feel anxious, but am I really in danger? Or is it a new situation that ultimately would provide growth or provide a step forward in my career. I mean, just because you feel anxious, which is your brain, doesn't mean it's bad. Mm -mm. No, it doesn't. It can mean that it's the imprint of something familiar. Right. It's before, it, it's an opportunity, but it reminds you of a time when maybe in the past you got stage fright or something and some, or a loved one, a narcissistic loved one said, oh, you could have done better in that presentation or something like that. And then in the future, you draw on that and think, I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to open myself to that potential shame again. 
You're absolutely I, right. I don't pretend to think that anxiety and depression are biological. Right. Because they do become biology. But biology is created by your mental states and your mental states create your biology. It's a feedback loop. 100%. So all the depression and all the anxiety that everybody is experiencing nowadays on some level is learned. Yes. I mean, and that is not to say it's not biological. So many people get angry and defensive. It is biological, but it's a learned biological process and it can be unlearned. And what you have to do is you have to learn to interrupt the space between that brain reaction and responding. And in that pause, in that mindful moment, is your choice and yes. your ability to change your brain and your life. I yes. Mean, you physically can change your brain through neuroplasticity by repetition and time. And things like EMDR, neurofeedback, can really help speed up the process, but you don't have to do those things. Yes, yes. So I like that you brought up that idea of the mindful pause because seriously, expanding that time between stimulus and response, even by a few milliseconds and then a few seconds, will make such a difference in whether we say something that we're later going to regret, whether we alienate someone who we think reminds us of a narcissistic, exploitative ex, or, or, we recognize that that's just our sympathetic nervous system overreacting in the moment. I mean, and that allows us so much freedom in how we then respond. We're not taught that though. We're taught follow your heart, which program your heart, program your heart into the responding better towards your safety. Don't follow an anxious heart into quarantining yourself based on past terrible experiences, which of course aren't your fault, but we, we carry, I tell clients it's painful. It's a painful truth, but we're never responsible for what was done to hurt us. We're still responsible for recovering though, which sucks, but we can either take that and do something with it and learn that we can do better once we recover, or we can take it and use it as an excuse or wallow or allow it to stagnate into a personality or so many different negative routes for it. But that's why it's so impressive when people like you really use your intelligence to not just help yourself, but to teach this stuff to other people, to have that, that passion for making neuroscience into something applicable. Because it really is. What could be more applicable? Um, and you, what I'm, I'm just astounded by how you don't sacrifice any of the technical findings when you make this stuff conversational. That's pretty awesome. Well, um, I try to, like I said, I have to make it so I can understand it. Sure. And I yeah. have to break it down into parts. And really, I mean, rather than try to confuse and dazzle people with big words, yeah. why not put it in ways that they can understand and use? How about that? Right. 
so to go back to your point about how relevant mindfulness is, which is an, a term that we use a lot, but I think is still pretty misunderstood in your, your article about the fundamentals of rewiring your brain. Uh, you say that the more alert you are, the bigger the brain change. So I think people need to realize experiences you'll, you'll encode them differently. You'll encode your response differently when you're alert and when you notice how you're behaving, when you choose to behave in a certain way and you notice the outcome, that's going to be more reinforcing of whatever positive change you're making than just going through automatically, which can be so easy to do in our lives. Well, Jeremy, another word that people can use for mindfulness, if they don't like the um, spirituality yeah. kind of connected to that, is attention. Bingo. Really, yep. really, I mean, it's just attention and focus and where you're directing your brain. That's all mindfulness is. It is, 100%. It, I mean, and you can get spiritual and philosophical with it, or you can get sciencey. I mean, whatever you want to call it. I'm actually working on a third book now um, on using mindfulness as a mental health tool. Boom. There you go. Because I do want to kind of separate like all the mindfulness is not the same thing as meditation or spirituality. A lot of times you see them used interchangeably. It's not the same thing. And I want to break it down for people so that they don't feel intimidated. And so that they have steps that they can look at and go, oh, okay, this is how I do it. Right. But it's really not complicated and it doesn't have to be. You're absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> I am, I am really glad that you spoke out against the faux spirituality, very Western hemisphere, uh, good vibes. All it is on one level is marketing. What? All it is on one level is marketing. Oh, 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 absolutely, 100%. And what you see and what I hear from clients is, that stuff works if you've had a bad day and someone cut you off in traffic. But when you have <laughs> systemic negative relationships with abusive individuals, just smile and meditate for a few minutes. That's not going to cut it. You need real sustainable tips and, and actual tools. And that's why I want to provide the science behind it. Yes. Because I don't want to add to all the marketing noise. Yeah. And I'm not promoting um, naked yoga or, <laughs> or a silent meditation retreat. Those things are fine, but you don't have to go to those extremes to get benefit. And you don't have to be a Buddhist master to get a benefit. God knows I'm not. <laughs> okay. That's, that's good to know. Oh, my God. Naked yoga. Haven't tried that. Me either. I don't <laughs> want to. I'm a yogaholic. I do yoga about three to four times a week. But I have no desire to do that. 
So let me ask you about what you think on hot yoga. You've done that, right? That's on your bio, I think. That's, that is the kind of yoga I do. As a matter of fact, I, I used to own the studio. And Ooh. it yoga is good no matter what kind of yoga you do. Hot yoga is just what I prefer and what a lot of people prefer. I'd rather be hot any day than cold. Tell me. And hot yoga warms the muscles up so there's less chance of injury. And it's also more of a workout. I do vinyasa or flow yoga, which yeah. is a lot of push-ups. And it's not the stretching, easy, relaxing yoga, but that stuff works too. And there's actually a lot of neuroscience why yoga works mentally, not just physically. It causes your brain to release GABA, endorphins. I mean, it's when I was healing from the brain injury, I did yoga about every day. And of course, it helped me regain my coordination because when I first started, I couldn't even balance on one leg. So, I mean, and after a brain injury, a lot of your muscles tend to get tense and locked, right. and it helped release those. But I could also tell after every class that it was doing something mentally. And remember, I was severely brain impaired. Right. I mean, I had absolutely no memory. Um, my thoughts and speech weren't um, together. Okay. And right. my cognitive processes just weren't there. But after every yoga class, I could tell. I mean, it was doing something. Right. And I would advise it for anyone. And it's not about being bendy and what you can do physically. It's about whatever you can do. Right. Bingo. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, yoga, it's fascinating how the things that were once so ancient, like, mm -hmm. oh, that's kind of fruity, now have come back and we understand why they worked. We understand the somatic, physiological mm -hmm. regulation that that stuff induced. So that leads me to a little bit of a rabbit trail here. So your book, which one was it? It was, let's see, I think it was your autobiography. Yeah, 23 ratings, five stars. The only book I've seen that I remember that got that perfect a rating was, speaking of yoga, um, The Body Keeps the Score, the book by Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah, so he talks about yoga a lot. It's very cool because he's this decorated psychiatrist who explored the alternative therapies and is very gung-ho, very excited about EMDR and other stuff that's non-medication that induces those deep changes besides just in the neurotransmitters on a short-term basis, but in that potentiation of the synapses. Well, and um, talking to his book mm -hmm. and what you know in your practice is that your body stores memories. Yes. And it yes. stores chemicals, cortisol. And yoga and physical practices, exercise, whatever you want to do. Yep. release those you you called it somatic i yeah. mean you you have to move your body to heal your brain and mm -hmm. your mind it's all one it's all connected and you can't separate it 
you can. Now, I'm not anti-medication. There are times when medication helps, but yeah. you can't just pop a pill and expect everything to be okay. It's all connected. I mean, right. you can pop a pill and do other things. Right. But it's, it's synergistic. I mean, yes. mental health and physical health it's a lifestyle. It's not one thing. It's not just going to yoga. It's not just eating a keto diet. Right. Or running five miles a day. It's right. a combination of everything. Yep, 100%. And that sort of integrative science is where we're really going in, in mental health and physical health. Uh, I'm not anti-medication either. It's interesting. I think some people could really benefit from medication who don't want it. And then other people may have a view that taking a pill is the magic solution for everything. So we gotta be somewhere in the middle where the pill or whatever is like jump starting a car where you may get that boost you need, but then the change, you have to have the hardware change that's a little deeper than that. Well, I think people erroneously think it's a long-term solution. Sure. And even when it works, it's not a long-term solution. It, like you said, it can be a short-term jumpstart mm -hmm. to help make other changes. Right. And it can be very effective. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, it uh, whether we're ready to or not we have to address at some point whatever traumatic events or whatever shaped our perspective on ourselves. And that's why it's so important that someone have a community or people in their lives that they feel comfortable doing that with whenever they're ready, right? Not too quickly, because that can be destabilizing, but exactly. I think often people may rely on medication exclusively because there's a fear either on an intrinsic level or either consciously that they're aware of, of addressing that stuff that's very shameful or that, that they would rather repress or do something to kind of drown it out, whatever that would be. I see that a lot. And, and I have such a heart for people like that because you get therapists who may be a little too excited to delve deep when you have to take it slower with people who aren't ready to face stuff. Right. And, Jeremy, that's where therapists like you can come in and be a big help. It's a lot of times people don't have that kind of person in their life. Right. You're and, right. And that's why seeing a therapist or a counselor is in no way a bad thing or no. the vision of weakness. It's right. actually a strength in finding your support network. Yep, 100%. Uh, and it all gets into what our understanding of mental health is. I, I'll be the first to say there's a huge stigma surrounding the mental health field. And for good reason. I mean, there's a bit of a, a sort of very, how, how to say this appropriately, well, just boring sort of veneer to a lot of mental health stuff. It's very much about you know, speaking softly and kind of whispered tones. And, and that's great for people if you really want a more delicate approach. But if you want a badass approach to therapy and you want to really be authentic, 
thankfully there's a new wave of therapists out there and mental health experts, advocates, whatever, who are going that way, where you're, they're introducing humor into it, right? They're making it more comfortable and less of a kind of cringe inducing experience of just, well, just, just having to regurgitate whatever you're upset about and it be a very, very kind of boring experience. I don't, have you ever heard of the book, You Are a Badass? No, it's a good one. That. Jen Sincero wrote that. She's like a life coach, but she's uh, a real firecracker and uh, did, a, I mean, that's a very eye-catching title and just talks about how past experiences and, and issues with uh, under, how you understand money or how you understand uh, praise or any kind of reinforcement, stuff like that can really affect people. And, and that, those are the core conversations that have to happen. And it can be in many different ways. So finding somebody whose personality works out with you, it's very much like finding a relationship. It's like for some people, they're really going to need someone who's very calm, very level, measured, almost monotone. If they're very stimulus overridden and can't like need, need that calm sense. But then somebody else who really wants humor or liveliness or whatever to kind of diffuse the tension, that's going to be a different approach. So there's, there's a therapist out there for everybody. You know, there would be my counsel on that, especially somewhere like where I am in Colorado. I don't know how it is back South because I visit a lot, but I don't know as much the landscape there on that. That would be interesting. Um, after my brain injury suicide attempt, uh, I did go back to counseling. I hadn't been in probably a decade. Okay. And I found a really good therapist. And I don't know if it was the case of when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, or yeah. if she was just that good. But she practiced cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. which, as you know, but your listeners may not know, it actually, through neuroplasticity, changes your brain. So, a lot of therapies do, and a lot of therapies now are based on neuroplastic principles. But, and she'd read a lot of the same books and used humor, and we just kind of clicked, and like, it was such a positive experience. She retired, and when she did, she said, you don't even need to find anybody But I still wish I had her once in a while just to kind of bounce things off of. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so what inspired you to write your story into a, a book form? Because, by the way, the title's great. That's pretty good. And the cover's cool, too. That, that's some, some really spiffy stuff. Well, I'm going to show it right here, if you can see it. It's, yeah. I self-published it. It's called Sex, Suicide, Serotonin. I self-published it um for yeah. a few years right and then i actually got a publisher and believe it or not um i started writing it about in the second or third year after the brain injury so all the emotions were still pretty fresh yeah and i still was not completely recovered from the brain injury so it was a 
a really good thing for me to do just to sit at home and write because I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything else. I still didn't speak normally. Right. And believe it or not, and I, I didn't set out with this intent, but after I'd written it, it was like writing it helped me heal because once I put it on paper, I didn't have to carry it around anymore. So it, it was a really healing process for me. And I've got a blog on my website about how writing helps you heal mentally and emotionally. Yes. And yes. writing is one way that you can process emotions. Certainly it is. But I read it now and I'm like, it's almost like it happened to somebody else. I mean, I know it was me, but I don't know. I don't feel the gut-wrenching emotions that went with it. But I think the gut-wrenching emotions are there. I mean, the, like you said, the reviews on Amazon are like, people say it's life-changing. And I'm just floored, but I'm so glad. Because yeah. to take your pain and make it worthwhile and meaningful and helpful to others is, I think, the, the most that you can have for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's profound. Um, and putting it in a way that people understand that their experiences are not somehow insurmountable, that you've been through horrendous pain and come out to be such a, an advocate and an artist out of it too, that you know, sharing what you've learned in a way that's distinctly you. Uh, one of your articles that you did with Huffington Post was CBT related. Oh yes, uh, the quickest way to change how you feel is to change how you think. That automatically made me think of cognitive behavior therapy. So it's interesting to hear you discuss how you were profoundly influenced by that. Uh, I think people who have more of an intellectual, authorly bent, you know, proclivity toward that really resonate with CBT because you can get in, you can challenge those thoughts and look at it as rewriting your your mental processes. The thing that I think is good about CBT or BHT or ACT yeah. is they actually have concrete steps. Yes. I mean, people, I think, tend maybe erroneously think of therapy yeah. as like laying off Freud's couch, like you said before. Yeah. And then, I mean, having this dumping of emotions. Right. And it doesn't have to be that anymore. No. It can actually be constructive, concrete things that, and I want to touch on this before. Please. Um, even if you go to a therapist or read books or whatever you do, uh, the work has to be, you have to do the work, regardless of where you get your guidance. 100%. So that is something that we all can do. I mean, we all can take concrete steps and make changes. Little changes add up to big results, especially consistently over time. I mean, that's how you change your life. That's how, and that's how you change your brain. It would and be, we all can do that. Yes. That's so crucial for people to realize 
it, it, it's like if we expected to go into the gym after not exercising either in our whole lives or in a long time and then lifting the heaviest weights or running on the treadmill for a really long amount of time, like we would know, okay, so maybe we need to dial it back a little bit. It's not, we're not going to be that level of um, ath- athleticism. Our athleticism is not going to be that high yet. But we tend to not have that awareness when it comes to other goals. We tend to want to achieve them right away. The more abstract the goal, the less we kind of look at it as something to do incrementally, right? And so I love how CBT and anything like ACT, Acceptance and Commitments Therapy, that's a good one, um, help people to realize anything is going to require that incremental change. Instead of... my my. My thing is, if you learn about how your brain works, you can help yourself. For instance, um, along with these things, it's really important that you celebrate and acknowledge the small accomplishments. Right. Like the even going to the gym and walking on the treadmill for yes. 15 minutes. And the reason why is because it causes your brain to release dopamine. And dopamine is a number one, is a feel-good transmitter, neurotransmitter. It calms you, but it also is primarily responsible for motivation. So it also keeps you going back. So when you understand how your brain works, you can understand little things to do to help point it and you and your life in the right direction. Oh, I couldn't have said it better. That's spectacular. Yeah, we have to mindfully savor our accomplishments or else we're not going to continue doing them. We have to reinforce that which we want to become. We do that negatively. We do that with things that we do that we're embarrassed of, that we don't do again, but we don't do it with things that we want to repeat typically. It's like you said, we focus on danger. We focus on surviving things, not on thriving. So we have to really amplify that positive reinforcement. We have to add it and put extra attention on that or we're not going to keep doing that because we're not going to feel like it mattered. I know it sounds hokey, but one thing I think that really works wonders is just a mental gratitude list at the end of the day. Oh, that's beautiful. Because I love it. Like, like you said, your brain is going to remember all the shitty, horrible things that happened. But what if you took just 10 minutes at the end of the day and really looked for little moments that were good or things yep. that were right because your brain skips completely skips over those yep your brain does what's called habituation which means it it gets used to the norm um you 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 pretty much probably eat every day so your brain doesn't be thankful that you have food in the fridge but what if you didn't have any food for a day do you think your brain would notice that Oh, you better believe it. Right. So if you're going to spend time focusing on the bad, why not spend time focusing on the flip side? That you have heat, that you have money in the bank, that you have clothes on your back, or transportation. Again, I think it sounds a little hokey, 
to be thankful that the sun is out. But what if it had been raining for three days mm -hmm. and 10 degrees? Wouldn't that be something to be thankful for? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. No, it's not hokey. It's really necessary. And when people hear about gratitude journals, they can think that it's somewhat hacky or corny if they don't really understand the science of it and how exactly. it can be used. And that's why I yes. do the science. Yep. And I'm sure that people will benefit from hearing that in your book. And I'll be, I'll be excited when that comes out, your, your mindfulness book. That'll be a good, uh, a good refresher for client for, for anyone. Well, in the meantime, they can get similar stuff in this book. Oh, yeah. I love it. That's a good one. I mean, we were talking about before your brain's natural negativity bias. Yeah. Gratitude list, um, finding the good affirmations. All those things are the way that you combat your brain's natural negativity. Yep. And those kind of things are in this book. Yep. And for people listening on the podcast when that comes out it's the beat depression and anxiety by changing your brain book it's got an awesome smiley face on the front and i will link to it where it'll take people directly to amazon to buy it okay so one thing i wanted to bring up since we're on the topic of dopamine chemicals and all that is something that is just mind-blowing that you wrote about way back in 2016 it's weird that that's feels <laughs> yesterday but anyway um the depression the melanocortin releasing neuron medication that i'll link to this article too spectacularly interesting stuff about this medication that is being crowdfunded right that was a, i had not heard about that so people can check out cornell morgan's indiegogo page how did you get wrapped up in that, Debbie? That, that's wild. They actually contacted me. Okay. And um, they're doing, they were doing phenomenal research. I need to follow up. I don't know if they got funded or not. But I get contacted by several um, organizations like that. And like I said, I do believe in promoting mental health. Yeah, and I, there are a lot of organizations and people out there uh, that are grassroots. Not, I mean, of course, you hear about big pharma, of course, and the medical professionals, but there's a lot of other stuff worth merit out mm -hmm. there. And if you start exploring and investigating, yeah. It's out there, you can find it. And just because Western medicine does not endorse it, doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. When I was healing from my brain injury, I did all alternative therapies. When Western medicine had nothing to offer me. And I'm not downplaying Western medicine. Western medicine is very good in a medical emergency or crisis right but there are a lot of other countries that embrace other technologies 
that we don't hear in the US, like neurofeedback. That is standard in other countries. And you know as well as I do, that's phenomenal. It yeah. actually changes your brain waves. And I would I would credit that and hyperbaric oxygen therapy with healing me from the brain injury. When Western medicine basically told me I was screwed and I was severely impaired. But solutions to almost anything are out there. True. They may not be part of Western medicine or readily available, but if you start doing some research and start finding resources like me and other people, there are things out there that can help you. Oh, that's so beautiful. I couldn't agree more with that. I want to ask you something that I try to ask all my guests. If you could meet three people, living or dead, could be famous philosophers, be religious figures, whatever, who would you meet? Well, my number one choice is a no-brainer, would be my dead brother. I would love to see him again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And other than that, it'd be uh, Michael Merzenich, who is a scientist who originally confirmed neuroplasticity Okay. Uh, back in the 70s at UCSF, and he's a leading advocate in the brain mental health arena now, and he is a co-owner of a company called Posit Science, and they have cutting-edge technologies, brain training for autism, for brain injuries, that kind of thing. Matter of fact, I did their products extensively to heal my brain from the injury. Like I said, this stuff is out there. Yeah. And the other one would be Norman Deutsch, who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself. Oh, that's awesome. That book was my Bible. That book tells um, stories of people born with half a brain that are completely normal or people that have had devastating injuries or that learned how to see with their skin. And after I read that book, I, I was like, okay, here's a manual that tells me how to heal my brain. Every right. brain injury and every brain are different, yeah. but right. the principles are the same. And I used the information in that book to heal my brain. That is just spectacular. Um, the, the the brain that heals itself is a book that I've heard about from so many people, and I need to read it. It's on it's on my list. It's great. I can tell. It's um, also very entertaining. It's not real sciencey. Right. Okay. Well, then it'll be it's very conversational style, huh? Right. That is really interesting stuff. It's so important for people to actually get some actionable tips for their mental mental health instead of just. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah the 
the good vibe stuff, I, part of it really does come down to marketing. Most of it does. You're absolutely right. And I think there's some well-intentioned people who like to feel that they're helping. And they don't understand how little they actually are helping. That's a whole thing. Oh my gosh. So, uh, have you traveled? Have you done any, any traveling with your, with your message? No. Um, I actually work. Oh yeah. Okay. Every day. So I don't know. It's my hope. I only work part time. Yeah. And I run my online business the other part of the time. So it is certainly my hope. Yeah. One day I can just write books and go speak. You're going to do it. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you are with, with the, the level of stuff that you're writing with the articles and actual full length books too. Um, I love that you emphasize mental rehearsal by the way. Uh, so that's something that goes along with the gratitude of you have to repeat the stuff that you want. It can't just be, well, just like going to the gym. It's not, well, I did this. I, I did a few reps of the rowing machine and now I'm going to be a great, a great kayaker. No, you have to practice gratitude and seeing things positively at the very least a few times a week. It'd be great to do that every day, but you have the faster you want to see changes, the more you have to do it. Bottom well, um, as you referred to, I have a blog about the 10 fundamentals of neuroplasticity. Yep, One looking. of the fundamentals is almost everyday repetition. Yep. Your brain is not going to make changes unless it's reinforced periodically. And the best way is every single day. When I was doing brain training to heal from my brain injury, our brain trained every day for years. And think about the way bad habits get ingrained is you do them over and over and over. Yep. Why you have to do the same thing for good habits, whether it's a gratitude list or going to the gym right. or meditating or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that was what I was looking at. That article is really, really great. I'm going to recommend that a lot to people because people need a list of evidence of, of encouragement about neuroplasticity. That's it. I mean, why it's such a key movement is because for so many years, scientists were saying that once the brain reached adulthood, that that was it, right? Oh yeah, they thought they thought basically the brain only changed during a critical periods in childhood, right? And that once you got to like early adulthood, your brain was pretty much set. Well, right. now we know that's not true at all. Your brain changes until the day you die. Right. It is more easily changeable during childhood. It's more plastic. And think about it. They don't really have to put much energy or effort into it. Right. As an adult, you do need to kind of, we were talking about your attention being mindful. Your attention is like a spotlight. You do have to put your attention on changing your brain and right. changing your behavior. You have to have intent. 
But think about it. You put attention on bad habits. Yes. Um, subconsciously, even though you don't mean to. Right. Uh, if somebody is doing drugs or drinking alcohol, they certainly intend and purposely do that over and over and over. Right. So they're, they're giving the attention and repetition necessary to change their brain, but they're not doing it intentionally. Meaning right. do it. What if you use that same power that that's the power you have to change your life. What if you use that to help you? Exactly. Right. What if we use that to actually in, increase behaviors in a positive addictive way? It's getting yourself to do the least little thing and then building on that. So when I like that, you just said positive addiction. Yeah. No, and I can't take credit for that. I'm sure I read that somewhere, but the okay. thing is, yeah, um, it, it's like uh, arguing yourself into how to do something. Uh, people will often watch like a YouTube video and then it'll just go to the next one or the next one or with Netflix or with anything like that. You kind of make the initial decision of, oh, I'm just going to do this for 30 minutes or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to watch this episode. Then it turns into longer, people binge watch, which is okay sometimes, obviously, but that mechanism of little by little and then adding up, we often allow to happen unconsciously, but we can use that in a conscious way to build up, to, to decrease our resistance to something by saying, I'm going to do it a little bit. And then if you end up doing it more, great. And if you don't, then you lived up to that small goal that you set either way. I tell my son all the time, you're, you know, the mental chatter, you're talking to yourself all the time anyway. Why not use it to help you? I mean, it's the same with your, I love teacher, that. your behavior, your energy. I mean, you're exerting energy over your life, making little decisions all day long. Why not use them to help you? Why not use your self-voice to help you? 100%. Why not? Take ownership of it. Don't allow something to stay automatic that you can manually increase in its effectiveness and helpfulness. Yeah, that's absolutely 100%. Um, people have to be willing to do the, the, the groundwork on that and just realize that it's, it's a small commitment a day and our, our limbic system gets into like wanting to be either safe or not wanting to think into a very binary thought process. So we have to realize that it's a very incremental different sort of frontal lobe planning that is going to get us where we want to go in terms of improvement. If you live your life guided by your frontal lobe and insert some intelligence into your actions and behaviors, mm -hmm. you'll be fine. And your frontal lobe is, does prioritize your happiness. Yeah. Um, if you don't and you just live according to your feelings and reactions, you're going to end up unhappy and I always say in the ditch because that's where <laughs> right. I went. My life went straight into the ditch. Yeah. I, it's something that many people 
allow if, if you don't have any way of living beyond that and you're taught this is just the way that your mind works this is just the way things are right. it's really difficult to know any better and so that's why it's so powerful that you're sharing messages that we have people now who care enough to say you're struggling here's a better way to think if you've been taught to just suck it up or deal with things in this way and repress it until you explode you know, repress it until you return that inward and hurt yourself. Here's a way to deal with it. That's sustainable. That doesn't lead to that because many people are raised in a way, as you were saying, where you don't, you don't know that there's a, a better capacity. There's a, there's a different manner of dealing with stuff. And my life these days is not all rainbows and glitter and unicorns, but the big difference is that I now have the tools and the confidence to know that I can figure it out. Yeah. And I can weather whatever happens. Yes. I don't have to freak out. I don't have to run away or try to die. I can figure it out. And my, my favorite phrase, I still have anxiety and I practice coming into the present and calming breathing almost every day. And my favorite phrase that I tell myself is, this is for now, not yes. forever, not forever. For now, not forever. Right. And I can get through anything for now. Yes. That's actually a really positive way that people can deal with addictive urges too. It's like, I am going to right now resist smoking a cigarette. Because people think, oh, I have to never smoke again. Oh my gosh, I can't live up to that. And then That's they, overwhelming. It is. But I'm going to ride out this urge. I'm going to imagine it like a wave and I'm going to let it pass over. That is sustainable. That is something that you can do just for a small moment in time. Just That's great. That's called urge surfing. Have you, you know yes. that? Yes I, yes, I do. And it's part of ACT, that old ACT. I love acceptance and commitment therapy. I do a lot of dialectical behavior therapy with clients because the curriculum is so helpful and I do a group with it. So, but they're really similar. Those two there. It's just that acceptance and commitment therapy obviously stresses acceptance more. Whereas DBT is all about like the wise mind and the whole delivery system there of that stuff. So as we're winding down here, I want to open the floor up to you to share anything that you want to, leave listeners with anything that we didn't address that you think would be relevant i, I know that's a lot yeah <laughs> me, i just i just want to say and I, my main message is that we all have the power to change our lives we do and our brains and it doesn't require a bunch of money yeah it doesn't require um professional help or technology great if you can afford those things sure. or a prescription i mean those things can help but if you have a thinking brain you have the resources to change your life one little decision one little step at a time that's it that's beautiful this has been the fox den thank you debbie that was just so inspirational well, thank you, Jeremy. 